Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for this time of worship. We thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to study your word, to, to, to know you more. I pray, Lord, as we, as we open the text of Scripture, that you would open the eyes of our hearts. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, help us to see exactly the truth you have us to see, Lord, to understand the truth you would have us to understand, and then to take that truth as we leave this place and apply it to our lives to be transformed into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen. Wow, well, this has been an incredible weekend for our church. Friday night, Ken Bevel was here, Star of Courageous. If you missed that, you missed a real treat. He was challenging and engaging and uh, such a neat opportunity for our people to hear and, and be challenged by him. Saturday morning was much of the same. Classes offered and a lot of parents here trying to learn how to disciple their children and how to train their children in the home. And I, I, I believe with all my heart that this weekend is going to be the beginning of something fresh and exciting for our church. I believe so many of the families here were challenged for the first time, some of them, in ways they'd never considered. You know, in the world we live in, sometimes it's hard to recognize our calling as parents, but I think so many families were challenged. So many families were challenged to know God more and to take what they know about Christ and take it into their homes and train their children. And so I really believe this is going to be the beginning of something incredible in our church. This was the first of what we're calling a family summit. We're going to do a lot more of these. We're going to do one big one every year. Next year it's going to be bigger. And in the meantime, we're going to offer all kind of training for people so they can learn more about how to disciple their children. But I want to challenge you and encourage you, parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles, pray for our families. Pray for our moms and dads. There, there's a world out there that's teaching them things that's opposite of what the Scripture teaches them. And there's a model and a mode of parenting out there that's unbiblical. And we need to challenge our families to do the things that Christ has called us to do and, and to be the families that Christ has called us to be. So let's go ahead and begin this morning by taking your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We spent last week in Acts chapter 2. We're going to spend this week in Acts chapter 2. And we're going to study the New Testament church we're going to study what is probably the clearest picture of the first century church in all the Scripture. And as we study this morning, I wanted to challenge you. I wanted to challenge you on three different levels. I wanted to challenge you, first of all, as an individual. Secondly, I wanted to challenge you as a Sunday school class or small group or whatever that looks like in your life. And thirdly, I wanted to challenge us as a church. Because what we're going to learn in Acts chapter 2 this morning is that the way that the first century church conducted itself, unfortunately, is very different from the way that a lot of modern churches conduct themselves. Just a little bit of background in Acts chapter 2 about kind of where we are in the scripture. Jesus Christ has already been to the earth. He's lived a sinless life. He's walked willingly to Calvary. He's given his life on the cross. He died. He was buried. He rose from the dead three days later. And he ascended into heaven. Now, Acts chapter 1, if you've got your Bibles in Acts chapter 2, hold that spot and go back to Acts 1 just for a minute. I want to point something very interesting out to you. 
Acts chapter 1, verse 15. I think we've got that one on the screen if you don't have it in your Bibles there. Chad, bring that up for me if you would. Acts chapter 1, verse 15. Now, this is the context in which we're going to find ourselves in Acts chapter 2. Jesus has already risen from the dead. He's already ascended into heaven. And Acts 1, 15 says, In those days, in the days that Christ had just ascended into heaven, Peter stood up among the believers, a number, a group numbering about how many? 120. Now, here's what we need to understand. All the Christians in all the world were about 120. <laughs> now, there are quite a few more people in this congregation right now than 120 people. In fact, one section holds about 100 people. So this, this section over here, that's about the number of believers in the first century church. In all the world. Now, I want you to understand that when these people get together, when these people come together to hear Peter praying and to hear Peter preaching, something amazing is about to happen. If you were to continue reading in Acts chapter 1 and the beginning of Acts chapter 2, we read what's called Pentecost. Now, Pentecost is when the Holy Spirit fell upon the believers. And when the Holy Spirit fell upon the believers, it took a small, scared group of people and it infused them with some things we probably will never fully understand. One of the things it infused them with was courage and strength to begin to do the things that Christ called them to do. So we see Peter, who was very timid and very shy oftentimes, not in his life, but after Christ had been crucified and died, he got scared along with the other disciples. They go and hide in the upper room. After Pentecost, something different happens. Now fast forward to Acts 2.41. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. We've got 120 believers in all the world. The Holy Spirit falls upon the believers at Pentecost. And now right after Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse 41 says this. Peter's preached. And the Bible says those who accepted his message, that's Peter's message, were baptized. And about three, how many? Thousand were added to their number that day. Now, I don't have a degree in math. But I know that an increase from 120 to over 3,000 is a pretty significant increase statistically. So we take this small little group of people, this fledgling little church that was scared, didn't quite know what they needed to do. We see the Holy Spirit fall upon them. We see 3,000 people saved in one day. And we see an incredible increase in what Christ is doing in the church. Now here's the point I want to make. This is important as we move forward. These people that we're going to study about this morning in the new church were brand new believers, right? I mean, the vast majority of these people had been a Christian. Some of them were just a few days. They hadn't been a believer for five years, ten years, a decade or two or three or four. They hadn't been a Christian for 60 and 70 years like some of you have. They were brand new believers, now, that's going to be very important for us here in just a few minutes because as we study Acts chapter 2, as we think about last week, we saw this, this push and this emphasis on community within that first church. We talked about the importance of fellowship and we talked about the importance of, of community and we talked about the fact that they devoted themselves to Christ while at the same time devoting themselves to each other. And the Bible says that miraculous things happened. Miraculous signs and wonders were done. Now, let's take a look at Acts chapter 2 again. Beginning in verse 42, we'll review what we looked at last week and then we'll dive into our passage of Scripture we're going to focus on this morning. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. They, that's the early church, these are the 3,000 plus, most of them, brand new believers. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. 
Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Verse 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. And now for our our focal passage this morning, verse 45, selling their possessions and goods, and they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, and they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, I want this passage of Scripture this morning to fundamentally challenge some things about who you are. I want you to read this passage of Scripture, and I want, to be, I want you to be challenged by who this early church was. I want you to be challenged by the things that they said and by the things that they did. And there, there are three truths that I want to draw out this morning that ought to challenge you on every level of your Christian walk. The first truth I want you to see that's very clear in this passage of Scripture, number one, is for this early church, their devotion to Christ radically changed their actions. Number one, their devotion to Christ radically changed their actions. Now, let me me put this in another phrase. Let me put this in other words for you. I want you to pay attention to what's going on here. Their devotion to Christ directly affected the way they lived their lives. You understand that? I wonder how many of us could say, my walk with Christ is directly affecting the way I live my life. Now, this passage is clear, again, as the first part of Acts 2, 42, 44 is showing us that this this same community and this same commitment to fellowship is present in these verses as well. We see the idea that these people were together, that they had things in common. The Bible says they sold their possessions They gave, they continued to meet, they broke bread. The Lord added to their number. We see this importance of fellowship and community and togetherness. It wasn't an individual act. It was an act of these individuals coming together in community. But here's maybe the most amazing thing about this story in Acts chapter 2. These people were brand new believers as we established just a few minutes ago. And I want you to think back just for a second if you can remember. I want you to think back to... What your life was like before you became a Christian? What types of things did you do before you were saved? Now, some of you say, well, it was a long time ago. I don't remember a lot, or I remember a lot, and I remember the bad things and the difficulties I went through. Or you say, well, it's so long ago. I've got a friend now that's an unbeliever, and I see the struggles that this person is having. I started thinking about the the life of an unbeliever because remember now, these people in the first century church just a few days previous to this were unbelievers, remember? They hadn't yet come to accept Jesus Christ. And I I tried to think about what an unbeliever looks like and, and, and I thought if I could characterize an unbeliever, a person that was without Christ, and I had to describe that person with one word, I would use the word selfish. Right? I mean, an unbeliever would say things like this, I want to do what I want to do I want to do it when I want to do it. I want to do it with whomever I want to do it. And what I do is none of your business. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. You live your life. I'll live my life. Don't worry about me and I won't worry about you. Selfishness. Now, I want to contrast that idea. And some of you are thinking, I'm a little selfish now. (laughs) I want to contrast that idea of selfishness with what we actually see in the first century church. Look at verse 45. Verse 45 says that these people were selling their possessions and goods and they gave to anyone as he had need. So so they go from this idea of selfishness to selflessness. You see that? 
They go from this idea of I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And when the power of the Holy Spirit falls upon them, now all of a sudden I'm going to do the things that other people need me to do to help them to bring glory to Christ. Now we look at the model of this first century church and, and we begin to notice how they actually made this happen. And I could just envision this meeting there in somebody's home and somebody walks in and says, listen, have you heard about John down the road? Man, John's really struggling, you know. He, he lost his job or he, he doesn't have enough food right now or some of his cattle have died or whatever. He's just, he's really struggling in his life and he needs our help. And I just envisioned somebody in that group saying, well, you know, here's my hat. Let's pass our hat around. Let's all put in a little bit of money. I'll put in a couple of dollars. You put in a couple of dollars. We'll take up a love offering. We'll take that money down to John and, and, and John will be blessed in that little amount of money that we give him. See, that, that's, that's not what happened in the early church. What happened instead is the guy walks in and says, John is having trouble down there. Man, he's struggling. He lost his job. Some of his cattle have died. And then as they look around the room, they start going, well, hey, you know, I've got, I've got a farm. I'll just sell my land. And I'll just take that money and I'll, I'll give it to him. Another guy, well, I've got a house. I'll just sell my house. Move in with you guys and I'll just give him all that money. Or I'll sell my cattle or I'll sell my furniture. I'll, I'll do whatever it takes. My devotion to Christ is going to radically affect my action. And so I'm going to do whatever it takes to help this person make it through this difficult time. And I kind of followed that line of thinking in my heart and my mind. And I, I kind of arrived at this question. What's the most radical thing you've ever done for Christ? What's the most radical thing you've ever done for Christ? Now, for some of you, it's going to be mission work we're about to do. For some of you, it will be when you walk into that village in Guatemala for the first time and you experience what Christ is doing in the hearts of these people and you experience what Christ is doing in your heart and your mind, that's going to be the most radical thing you've ever done. For some of you, you say, I'm, I'm not that far down the spectrum yet. I'm over here. Hey, Adam, I got up and came to church this morning. That's pretty radical for me. It was cold, and I didn't want to get up, man. I wanted to relax today, but I got up and came to church, and that's radical for me. Uh, others of you say, well, you know, I've done a little bit more than that. I've given to a love offering before. That was pretty radical. Or we did that missions offering back in August, and I gave some money to that. I thought that was pretty radical. At Christmas, we gave some money to some people in need. Or, or maybe I fasted a, a couple of years ago. But here's what's not on most of our lists of radical things we've done for Christ. Selling all our possessions and giving to the poor. I bet you that's on nobody's list in here. And I'm, I'm at the front of the line, by the way. It's not on my list either. I bet none of us could even say, well, I sold half my possessions one time and gave to the poor. Or I sold a quarter of my possessions. Or I sold 10%. Or I sold an old car one time. I, did, I just wonder as we kind of whittle it down and whittle it down and whittle it down and whittle it down. What's the most radical thing we've ever done for Christ? See, when most of us think about giving, we think about like this. Hmm, what can I give from my excess? What extra amount do I have laying around that I don't really need so I can give to somebody else? See, that's, that's not the mindset of the first century church. They didn't look at their excess. They looked at everything they owned and they said, well, I've just got this land. I'll just sell this land. And what we begin to see as we study this passage of Scripture... And what we begin to see as we understand the first century churches is that their level of obedience was radically different than ours. You understand that? Their level of devotion was radically different than ours. I was reading some this week about the first century church. It's just fascinating, all the things they had to endure and all the things they went through and all the difficulties. And I, and I, I found this quote from one scholar who was speaking of the early church, and here's what he said. Now, just listen to the phrases he uses 
more and more soldiers of the Spirit were sworn to the symbol of the military oath through baptism and the confession of truth. This mystery bound them to the service of Christ and the simplicity of his divine works. Through immersion, the believers buried all their ties and involvement of their former lives. In other words, we're just doing away with our old life. Each believer broke with the status quo and was committed to live and die for the cause of Christ. You see, when we examine the first century church, we see that their devotion to Christ radically changed the way they lived their lives. Now, we shouldn't be terribly surprised by this because this is what we see all through Scripture. These are the sorts of commands that Christ has given us over and over and over again. Christ will say something like this. Hey, it's not going to be easy. People are not going to like you because of me. They're going to hate you because of me. And the world's going to be a tough place to live if you're a believer. So, for example, we see passages like Matthew chapter 10, verse 39. Listen to what Jesus says. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. By the way, he says that over and over in the Gospels, that same quote. Luke chapter 9, verse 23 says this, And he said to them, this is Christ speaking to the disciples and people that would listen, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. I just wonder what our world would look like if we were radically obedient now to the things of Christ. But see, here's where, here's where our, our thinking is upside down on this issue. Because we look at the first century church, we look at everything they did, and we're surprised by their devotion, aren't we? Well, I, are, seriously, they did that? Really? They sold their possessions and they gave? We're surprised by their devotion. Instead, what should surprise us is our lack of devotion in our world today. See, we, we've got this thing kind of upside down. I read a book one time by Richard Wormbrand. He's a pastor in Romania, and his book is called Tortured for Christ. He was a pastor in Romania in the 1940s, and when the communists took over in 1947, he was arrested, and for 14 years, he was in prison. He was arrested because he was a believer and because he wanted to preach the word of Christ, and so he writes about his time in prison in this book, and here's what he says. It was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners as it is in captive nations today. It was understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. And a number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching. And so we accepted their terms. It was a deal. We preached and they beat us. We were happy preaching and they were happy beating us. So everyone was happy. I think we, we miss sometimes the devotion to Christ that has changed the world. I think we get so caught up in our selfishness that we forget that the followers of Jesus Christ in the first century were radically obedient. And when they're so radically obedient that it literally changed the way they lived their lives. Now, I can already hear it from some of you like, wow, this is, this is it's an interesting study. And I see kind of where they were. But if, if they're at that end of the spectrum in radical obedience, I'm down at this end, Adam. I'm nowhere close. <laughs> and I'm coming here this morning. You're telling me I should be radically obedient to Christ. I can't, Adam. I'm, I'm, I'm nowhere close. Well, I want to encourage you right now. 
I want to encourage you, you need to understand something. Those early believers, those people in the first century church didn't think they could be radical for Christ either. But through the power of the Holy Spirit working in their lives, they did things that they could only imagine. And so can you. See, it's not about all the things that you can do and all the strength you can muster. It's about allowing Christ to work through you to accomplish the things that he wants to accomplish. For some of you, it's one step at a time. Adam, I'm at this wall. I'm trying to get that wall one step at a time. I'm going to commit myself this week to read my Bible more. I'm going to commit myself to, to praying more. I'm going to surround myself with a group of believers that can hold me accountable and help me think through issues and move forward in Christ. I'm going to be intentional about memorizing the Word of God, leading my family to memorize the Word of God one step at a time as we move closer and closer and closer to that radical obedience that Christ calls us to live by. As we continue to move on, look at verse 46. Verse 46 of Acts chapter 2 says this, Every day they, again, this is the early church, every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts, they broke bread in their homes and they ate together. Now watch this. With sincere, with glad, excuse me, with glad and sincere hearts. This is a little characterization of who they are. Verse 47, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So now we've seen already, first of all, we've seen this truth that should, that should, that should challenge us is that their devotion affected their lives. It affected their action. They lived their lives differently because of Christ. Here's the second truth. Their devotion to Christ also shaped their attitudes. Their devotion to Christ not only changed their actions, but it also affected their attitudes. Now, if you have children, you understand the importance of attitudes, right? If you have girls, and they're not here now, so I can say this. If they have girls, you really understand the importance of attitudes, right? And you have a firm grasp sometimes. We deal with that. Sometimes we deal with that, and as we, as we, wanna, as we train our children and help, to, help to, to move our children towards Christ, I have the conversation with my girls, especially, honey, you need to be Christ-like, right? You need, to, you need to have an attitude that glorifies the Lord and all things, but we, we understand the importance of attitude, don't we? I was doing some reading this week about attitude, and I came across this quote. I thought it was very appropriate. This writer said, your attitude is more important than the facts. <laughs> it's more important than the past. It's more important than education. It's more important than money, than circumstances, than failures, than successes. It's more important than what other people think or say or do. Attitude will make or break a company. It will make or break a church. It will make or break a home. The remarkable thing is that we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we will embrace for that day. We cannot change the past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play on the one string we have, and that is our attitude. He goes on to say, I'm convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. Interesting. Attitude is important. As, as I think about the attitude of these people in the first century, and I'm reading this text and I'm studying through their lives and I read that they had glad and sincere hearts. I read that they were praising God in all things. I read that they were enjoying the favor of all the people. There's this sense of joy and excitement and celebration that, that dominates this Acts 2 church, that dominates this first century church. But I want to put all this in perspective, okay? I want you to understand what's going on here. These people were living in a time when the government was actively, actively opposing their faith, right? You understand that. 
I mean, Christ had just been arrested and crucified because of all he was doing. And so now you've got all his disciples who you remember, his apostles, when he was arrested and crucified, they fled most of them in total fear. So the, the government is, is against this movement. It's against Christianity. On top of that, these believers were a social minority, right? There were not many of them. People in society looked down upon them. You should read some of the early accounts of Christians and what the world was saying about them. Society looked down upon these people. On top of that, they were selling everything they own and, and just giving it away. So they're in a context of, of government oppression, of, 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 of kind of a social misfit of people looking down upon who they were. On top of this, they're selling all their stuff and they're giving it away. And I just ask myself the question, what if we picked one of us up and set us down in this Acts 2 church in those circumstances, would we have joy? Would we find peace? Would we find excitement and be praising the Lord and have a glad and sincere heart in all the things that we did? See, I look around our world and I see somebody has a bad day at work and it ruins their attitude for the rest of the day, doesn't it? You know, you have a bad day at work and you come home and your evening is not quite as good as it could have been. You have a good day at work and everything's good at home, right? We know, we've all been there. You have a bad week at work and it's even a little worse, isn't it? You string a few weeks into a few months and all of a sudden you're looking for another job, aren't you? I can't deal with this at work. It's been three or four months now and I just can't, I can't go through what I'm going through. I'm struggling at work and I just can't find peace and contentment and, and happiness. And we ask ourselves the question, how could this early church... Living under the conditions in which they lived, find peace. How could they be glad? How could they praise God? How could they find favor and enjoy fellowship with each other? I think we have to understand. I think this is where so many believers miss it. I think that, that Acts 2 community, that early church based their excitement not on their own circumstances, but on the work of the Lord in their lives. See, that's the difference. They weren't so concerned about what happened to them as they were proclaiming the name of Christ and radical obedience to all the things that he commanded them to do. You say, that's very difficult, Adam. How do you, how do you arrive at that point in your life? I think for most people it's about perspective. It's about understanding that where we live now on this earth is not our final home. That our final home is in heaven with Christ. And the things in this world are important because Christ put us here and gave us a command to reach the world, but they're not the end. And I think people that pour themselves into this life without a thought of eternity are missing the boat. They're missing the point, and they, they wonder why they just can't find peace, and they can't find contentment, and they, they can't find joy, and they can't find happiness. They've got the wrong perspective. I'll never forget when this tornado came through, you know, a year and a half, two years ago, right out here in our community. And it tore through trees, and, you know, the dam you still see the damage as you drive into town. And I'll never forget, there was, this one, there was this one trailer up here on this little road down on the right. Some of you may know the trailer I'm talking about. And we were in the community for several weeks and helping people and handing out water and cleaning up and cutting trees and just trying to make our presence known with those people to let them know we loved them and wanted to help them. And I had a conversation with a guy that lived in that trailer. And he said, yeah, I've been in the hospital for a while. I was like, yeah, what's going on? He said, well, I'm having heart issues. I'm struggling. They're running some tests. I'm not really sure what's going on with me. And, I, you know, I've, I've been in the hospital for a few days. And I was like, you know, that's bad. That's a bad place to be, having to go to the hospital because of your heart. But as he told his story, I, I kind of began to see it from another angle. He said, well, here's what you need to understand. The night that tornado came through, I was in the hospital. <laughs> I was in a hospital bed. 
And when that tornado ripped through my community and tore down these houses and tore down these trees, that huge pine tree in my front yard, that that thing knocked down and went right through my trailer, went right through my bedroom, went right through my bed. If I'd been asleep in that bed, I'd be dead right now. All of a sudden, the perspective of being in the hospital is a little bit of a different deal, isn't it? See, it's about the way we see things. It's about the way we perceive life. It's, it's about the way that we understand who Christ is and what Christ is trying to accomplish in our lives. And if we can see past our circumstances to bring glory to Christ, if we can see past our circumstances to see this is not our home, there's an eternal home waiting for us, I think we'll understand so much better that perspective and that joy and that hope and that peace. I loved what, what Ken Bevel said Friday night. He, just, he challenged me personally in so many different ways, and I just really appreciated him doing that. I really appreciated him coming here and speaking the truth and love. But one of the things he said that just stuck out to me, he talked about parents and, and the important, importance of parenting. And he said the focus for parents is to raise their children to be Christ-like. That should be our driving focus in our lives. And he went on to say, your goal as a parent shouldn't be that your kid just makes good grades. Your goal in life shouldn't be that your kid is a star athlete. Your goal in life shouldn't be that your kid gets a good job and gets a good career and is successful in the eyes of the world. Now, we certainly want our children to succeed. We want those things, but those can't be our primary goals. Our goal as a parent has to be to raise our kid to be Christ-like. And I think so many people miss that, right? They, they, get, they have the wrong perspective on parenting. And they say, I want my kid to do this, 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 and they forget about the spiritual aspect, and they forget about the perspective that all this is temporal, and there is an eternity to come. I'm reminded of Mark 8, 36. The Bible tells us this. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet what? You know what? Forfeit his soul. I, I, I'm just worried that we live in a world of people that are trying to gain the world and they're giving up their souls. I think they're doing it in our churches. I think they're doing it at their jobs. I think they're doing it in their homes. But this is not the model of the first century church. This is not the model of Acts chapter 2. This is not the model of these early believers that dedicated themselves to Christ, that actually lived their lives differently because of who Christ was. Instead, what we see is this, this community of believers that are sold out to Christ, that are sold out to each other, that are devoted to his word, that are devoted to fellowship, that are devoted to, to do the things that Christ has called them to do. And it, because of that devotion, it leads them to radically do things that the world's not doing. It leads them to have different attitudes that the world doesn't have. And then I want you to notice what happens in verse 47. This is amazing to me. You kind of put all this in this big pot and you stir together these people that love each other and devoted to Christ and doing the things of Christ. And look at what happens in verse 47. The Bible says they were praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Now watch this. And the, what the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. We see this, this devotion that changed their action we see this devotion that changed their attitude. And number three, the, th the third challenge I want to make to you this morning to understand is for this early church, their devotion to Christ led them to evangelize the lost. Their devotion to Christ led them to evangelize the lost. I think that should slap most of us right across the face. Now I want to read to you what this does not say. Acts 2.47 does not say that the people added to their number daily. It's not what it says. It says very clearly that the Lord added to their number daily. 
I'm reminded of Matthew chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. Christ is speaking to Peter, and I want you to listen to what he says. Jesus replied, speaking to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. That's Peter. For this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. Now, verse 18. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, listen to what Christ says, I will build my church. He doesn't say, Peter, you need to go build the church. He didn't say, Peter, you need to go to a conference about building your church. He didn't say, Peter, you need to read a book about building your church. He says, Peter, I am going to build my church. It's the same thing we see in Acts 2, 47. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I think it's very important for us to understand that in a healthy church, we should see some sort of growth. Now, it's not always numerical growth. Don't miss that. We need to see some sort of growth spiritually. We need to see the, 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 the hearts of people being stirred. We need to see movement and people moving closer to Christ and moving closer to that radical obedience. And I, I, I believe that when you get a group of people together like this, the world sees it and wants to be a part of it. I think we reach people for Christ through that method. But I think we need to be very careful to understand here that nothing we can do will save anybody. It's only through the power of Christ working in their lives. Ephesians 2, 8 9 says this, This is very important for it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So you can't work your way to heaven. You can't physically save another person. But here's the beautiful part about salvation. God, for whatever reason in his infinite wisdom, allows us to be just a little part of that salvation. He says, I'm going to allow you on this earth to share the gospel with people to share the good news of Jesus Christ with the world. And when you do that, God says, I'm going to work through you and I'm going to bring people to myself. And so we see passages of Scripture like Matthew 28, 19, and 20. This is a command to you, now don't miss this. Therefore, go, he's talking to the believers, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So we, we should be challenged to evangelize the lost. You should be challenged on an individual level to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. You should be challenged on a Sunday school small group level to share the gospel. You should be challenged as a church to share the gospel. This is the command. And the Bible says when we do the things that we're called to do, when we devote ourselves to Christ and to his teachings and to all the things he wants us to do, if we'll do these things and share the gospel, he will add daily to those that are being saved. Now, Acts 2 is written in this context of community. It's written in the context of believers that are working together. The word they or there is used over and over and over again. There's this sense of fellowship and community. There's this sense of people that have come together in their devotion to Christ, and their desire to serve Him, and their desire to know Him better. And the, the, the beautiful thing about a small group of believers that can surround each other is that they can hold each other accountable. They can pray for one another. They can lift each other up. They can share the Word together and grow together co- closer to Christ. And it's in Acts 2 that we see this beautiful picture of fellowship and understand this beautiful picture of community and this challenge to do more. So I want to challenge you with something as I finish up this morning. I want to challenge you to do one of three things based on this teaching. Challenge number one is if you're involved in a small group, in a community of believers. Now, again, this is important. Corporate worship is very important. But we made the point last week that there should be something other than just corporate worship. When you surround yourself with a small group of believers, 
I want to challenge you, if you are already a part of a small group of believers, a small group or a Sunday school class, I want you to continue to be involved with those people. I want to challenge you to continue to grow with those people, to continue to study the Word of God with those people, to continue to pray together with those people. Secondly, if you're involved in a Sunday school class but you're not very committed to that class, I want you to make a commitment to be there. There's no reason you can't be here most Sunday mornings. If you choose not to show up, it's because of you. It's nothing these people are doing. There's no reason you can't be here most Sunday mornings. I want you to commit to do that. I want you to commit to surround yourself with other believers that can hold you accountable, that can be involved in your life, that can help you grow and lead you closer to Christ. And the third thing I want to challenge you with, if you're not involved in a small group or a Sunday school class anywhere, we're so passionate about this at our church that we're going to offer you next Sunday morning a class. We're calling it a Connect class. It's going to meet for you guys at 9.30. So at 9.30, you go into the fellowship hall. Randy Presley, our associate pastor, is going to teach a Sunday school class, and he's going to explain to you your options. He's not going to push you or make you sign anything or try to make you to give a commitment. He's simply going to say, here's the importance of Sunday school. Here are the classes we offer. Let me tell you what these classes are like, and we're going to try to find a place where you can plug in. And I want to challenge you, if you're not part of a class anywhere, to go next Sunday morning at 930 to that Connect class and hear about our Sunday school classes, and hear about all the incredible things that God is doing through those classes. I think the Bible's clear in Acts 2 that the early church understood the importance of community and fellowship, and they understood this idea of radical devotion. And this radical devotion changed their actions. It shaped their attitudes. It led them to a place of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with the lost and dying world. I think we need to do something this morning as we finish. I think we, number one, need to understand that model. But here's the thing we've got to consider in our own lives. How are we applying this model to our life? Are we living it out ourselves? That's our challenge. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. As always, Lord, we thank you for just the clear teaching of Scripture, Lord, as you just... as you just challenge our hearts, Lord. I, I I just know that we're all in different places this morning, Father. Some are much closer to that radical commitment, Lord, and and others are far from it. I just pray, Lord, right now that wherever we are in our faith, wherever we are in our walk with you, Lord, that today we take one step closer. Whatever that looks like, Lord, however you lead us and guide us, that today we would take one step closer to that radical obedience for you, Lord, whatever that looks like. Whether it's committing to Bible study, committing to Sunday school, committing to lead our families in worship, whatever, Lord, I just pray that you would convict us And then you'd give us the ability and the desire, Father, to move forward closer to you. Lord, I pray you just work in our hearts in a mighty and powerful way, Father. I pray that as we understand more about who you are, our dedication and our radical obedience would increase in ways that we can't even understand, Father. And then as this verse says, we just pray you would do incredible things among us. You would add to our number daily those that are being saved for your honor and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You can stand. I'm going to give you the opportunity for a couple minutes to come down and pray. Maybe you want to pray about your level of commitment or your place in that challenge. Maybe you want to pray about a small group and your need to find a group of people to surround yourselves. Maybe you want to repent of your sins and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Or maybe you want to join this church. But this is your time right now as we sing together. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.